Hello and welcome to another edition of the She-Wolf Investor podcast from Female Folio, bringing female-fronted, trustworthy and refreshing discussions on all things to do with your personal finances, savings and investing. I'm your host, Claire Barker, co-founder of Female Folio, and in each episode, I'm joined by one of the Female Folio team alongside a special guest. Together, we'll be delving into a financial topic that matters to you. Here at Female Folio, we are passionate about empowering women on their financial journey, and we understand the importance of handling your money in the right way. So we're very excited to share another inspiring conversation with you on how to become a She-Wolf investor. As you listen, we encourage you to think about how our discussions relate to you. And please remember, this is not financial advice. Think of it more as an education on what you could be doing. Okay, let's get on with today's show. Joining me on the podcast today is a fellow female folio founder who our regular listeners will be familiar with, the brilliant Phoebe Chamier. Now, we've heard Phoebe bring her experience as an investment manager on previous podcasts, but for this episode, Phoebe will be looking at how financial advice plays a key role in how women can protect their wealth, investments, and financial assets, particularly when going through a divorce. Phoebe, thanks so much for joining us again and welcome to the show. Hi, Claire. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to the conversation today and thrilled to have Ursula with us. And I'm delighted to welcome our special guest, Ursula Danaher. Ursula is a very experienced family law partner at RWK Goodman, a top 100 law firm. She deals with high-value divorce cases and has enormous experience in working with families planning for marriage and advising on prenup and postnup agreements. Ursula is named in CityWealth's leadership list as a leading individual in the international private client section, with reviews noting she is one of the real heavyweight names in family law and a fantastic leader in her field. So we are very honoured to have you as our guest on the podcast, Ursula. A warm welcome to the show. Thank you, Claire. I'm delighted to be with you today and looking forward to discussing what I consider a very hot topic. Thanks so much, Ursula. So, Phoebe, can you just take some time to explain what is the difference between an investment manager and a financial advisor? Absolutely, Claire. I think that's a really important point to clarify. I am a qualified investment manager and I manage money on behalf of clients in investment portfolios. And that is one small element of financial planning. So a financial planner will look at your whole financial forecast laid out on a plate and they will consider if you've got enough income and enough capital to last you through, if you're able to leave any money behind in your will. So when we're talking about a divorce settlement, it's really important to ask the advice of a financial planner or financial advisor because they look at the whole picture. Now, I could give someone advice on what investment risk they're adopting or which markets to invest into and help them add performance to their assets. But that financial planner will look at your personalised plan. That's great. Thanks, Phoebe. So this podcast is about how women can find a good path to financial security from a divorce as long as the right education 
and the right advice is sought. So I'd encourage you to listen to this with a view of how women can be empowered. And as we've discussed across this podcast series, we're particularly looking at women's wealth, which is rising. And the autonomy and sense of ownership women feel over their wealth is also growing. But there are daunting realities. And the Office for National Statistics states that 42% of marriages now end in divorce. And while divorce is harrowing for everyone, women often experience the worst effect of the financial consequences. Ursula, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think that generally people tend to divide roles in marriage and women often allow their husbands to take the lead on finances and don't give it the attention it really deserves for both their benefit, not just for her own benefit, but for the family benefit. That's an interesting point there, because I think, Phoebe, in previous episodes, you've mentioned that you've seen that in your own meetings with clients, that sometimes the husband does take the lead. Yeah, absolutely. I do see that. And it's a bit of a stereotype because it is changing in the modern world. Women are earning more money within their own right. They're becoming the breadwinners in the relationship. But traditionally speaking, and if we're going to stereotype, often it's the male breadwinner model and he's going to have more of a handle on on what's going on with the finances. They're going to have the higher level of financial literacy. And therefore confidence, really. And I think I think it's all very well when the relationship is going well and divorce isn't necessarily on the horizon because it's a very comfortable situation to be in. As Ursula said, you adopt your roles, you play to your strength, and it's a very caring, collaborative family setup. Now, when things aren't looking so rosy and perhaps you are looking at divorce, you then are missing half of your life management. You know, half of that is lost to the other party's strength. So it's kind of planning for the worst in a way, becoming a bit more financially literate. Ursula, I'm thinking there around, um, is it generational? Is it the slightly older generation that has gone into the more conventional style of relationship where the husband does traditionally hold wealth? Do you see that in your clients, maybe the younger ones coming through? And specifically there, I mentioned in the intro about prenup and postnup, and I wonder if you could give us a bit more info um, around those as well. Of course, Claire. I think it's true that it is a little generational in the sense that women have embraced careers now, embraced education and their own ambition financially. But unfortunately, prenups or premarital agreements are still considered to be rather unromantic, a little bit difficult to raise as a topic. And yet they offer the opportunity to really start, as you mean, to go on as a couple, to plan together, to give each other time to think about what their priorities are and not to overshadow one of you over the other. And I think it's interesting, Ursula, to point out that statistic again. As much as it's, as you say, very unromantic to get someone to sign a, a prenup, the statistics are there that 42% of marriages are likely to end in divorce. Hence, my most popular customers are second-time marriage couples tend to drift very strongly towards prenups mm-hmm. because they've had their fingers burnt once. They've been stung before. Yeah. They have indeed. Do they come to you for a buy one, get one free, <laughs> Ursula? <laughs> I have had returning <laughs> clients, sadly, but often clients say to me after a divorce, I wish I'd had a prenup. Don't end up having a prenup when they remarry. Yeah. So that's another sad statistic. But I think 
prenups should be seen as an empowering step that both of you are taking. So this leads us on to thinking more about the female psyche, the female DNA. And it's a big topic of conversation, one which we can't possibly do great justice to in this short time. But certainly if I look into when I was growing up, the romantic notion of the white wedding and, uh, you know, living happily ever after, you'd never think about prenup, postnup. And actually that was more that you'd see on American TV shows because Britain wasn't really a litigious society. We have moved on a bit now in our understanding and awareness, but is there still something about the female DNA that isn't maybe quite as savvy as we should and could be when entering marriage, entering financial relationships? So, Ursula, I'll go to you first and then, Phoebe, if you could come back in on thoughts around the female approach within the financial advisor relationship, that would be great. What I find particularly interesting is that even your classic career woman doesn't tend to take the lead financially in relationships. It's the exception rather than the norm. And I find it equally surprising that women don't tend to plan things like pensions and investments. They think it's okay because I'm happily married. I've got a husband to do that. And sometimes we'll end up in my world of divorce with a couple that have very ill-balanced financial portfolios because everything's in husband's name, Mm -hmm. sometimes massively over-invested in pensions, and the wife has none in her name. Yeah, I completely reiterate your point, Ursula. I think that the more financial literate party to the marriage is going to benefit. And generally that sits with the man who perhaps has more exposure to that world, especially if he is the male breadwinner, he's going to be handling the finances on a day-to-day basis. And the woman does take comfort from a loving marriage that he is earning money and he is putting away in a pension for the both of them. And she is the homemaker. She has sacrificed perhaps her career to do a very important job. And it is a job. And his success is completely reliant on her doing that. I think there's certain roles that women do tend to adopt more often than men with finances, but it might be specific roles. We've spoken about this before. Women do sort of dictate where the household budget goes. They're choosing what products they're buying for the house. They're perhaps choosing the cushions and the children's school shoes. Might it be tiles for the kitchen floor, Phoebe? Or tiles for the kitchen floor. (laughs) I am definitely choosing those. Interestingly enough, most women choose houses. Yes. Oh, that's true. And that's a huge asset. Talk to any estate agent as a life together progresses and their wealth grows, the house gets bigger and bigger and is often a very key asset. Mm. It's not unusual for me to have cases involving houses worth many millions of pounds and the wife's chosen the house Mm. and decorated it and restored it and everything else. So that's part of the equation they get involved with. Yeah. I hear this all the time. And then because, you know, that's been a labor of love for them and that's been their focus, perhaps, whilst perhaps they haven't been working and their children have gotten older and less reliant on them, the house also then becomes something that they want in the settlement of the divorce. Perhaps they're more laser focused on the bricks and mortar over the liquid assets of a a pension portfolio or a private portfolio or, you know, um, a private investment into a company. 
because they obviously have lived in that house. It's where their children grew up. Perhaps the children are still living at home. It's their nest. It's a source of comfort. It's something they understand. But they perhaps aren't thinking about the fact that they might get that house that's worth a lot of money. But then in order to live until old age, they're probably going to have to sell that house or downsize in order to provide them with some sort of income in retirement or throughout their lifetime because they've sacrificed the liquid assets. Absolutely spot on. That certainly used to be the case, but I think people generally have become a little bit more balanced in terms of their priorities financially. You know, as a family lawyer, I'm aware that people have to plan many years into old age. And classically, women used to do quite well in the early stages of a divorce. So they'd get the bigger house, they'd stay with the children, they'd have quite a lot of um, spending money, if you like, in terms of maintenance. But there was a neglect for forward planning their investment, their pension provision. And essentially, they had to trade down at some stage just to be able to survive the divorce in the longer term. So if we think about the fact, obviously, we're looking through the eyes of the she-wolf investor. And as we've spoken about in previous episodes, as the she-wolf investor starts to reveal herself, one of the sides of the she-wolf investor is being the leader of the pack, looking after the cubs. And when I think about some of the scenarios that you're talking about here, it feels like it's too late. You know, the agreements weren't made. And so it all has to be sorted out in court with a good lawyer like yourself, Ursula. But should there be something that a she-wolf investor should be doing before, and hopefully, you know, nothing goes wrong, but before anything might break down in the relationship so that the investments, pensions, properties, etc., are already ring-fenced in the case of a split? I mean, I guess that's a prenup. Well, I was going to start by suggesting what you should have in your relationship is financial transparency and uh, a clear intent regarding why you need that transparency from the get-go. The idea that people have separate accounts, put property in their own sole name, don't always keep each other aware of what's going on, and particularly men are bad at this. I think you know a wise she-wolf investor would ask, let's put our cards on the table. I'm here for the long term. I want to plan with you our lives, including our finances. I'm here to support you, you know, traveling around the world, getting those leading jobs. But I need to know that I'm in a position to stand on my own two feet. Should one of us, and it could be one of us, not generally both of us, want to get divorced at any point? So I have another statistic for you, which is that women significantly underestimate the impact divorce can have on their finances. With one in two, that's 48% of divorcees, ranking this life event as the most detrimental on their finances, according to a survey by NetWealth. So what should women be doing to secure a better financial position? So I would suggest that if you've missed the boat in terms of a prenup, you haven't missed the boat entirely, there's an alternative. There's a postnup you could consider entering into during the marriage that involves both of you giving full financial transparency and determining how you would divide things were the sad event to occur. I think what's really important here is nobody wants to have a bit of divorce, but Probably, Ursula, you can tell me that the majority of the time it does get a bit ugly and they start 
talking about money and unearthing things and it gets quite sensitive and and as much as people might want to settle outside of court and spend as little as possible on lawyers fees it's probably quite likely that it's going to go through court if there's a significant amount of money at play and obviously that's quite daunting for someone perhaps who doesn't earn money in their own right and is having to fork out these legal fees and you're not quite sure what your settlement looks like yet and actually I've dealt with clients who have called it quits at a certain point in the proceedings because they've got the fee fear. They're just petrified that this is going to go on forever. And he seems to be kind of propelling forward without any falter because he's able to pay the legal fees and he's got complete control over the finances at that point. Generally speaking, most people want to come to the table to settle in an amicable way. The difficulty arises when there's a lack of financial transparency innately in both parties. So therefore, one person's coming to the table almost in total ignorance, and one person has all the cards or the aces in their pack, and your lawyer's there to even up the balance. And the most sensible couples know that if they're in the traditional role model of one of them not having that financial savvy position, they will accommodate them and help them to get there. So the two lawyers will deal with the disclosure on an amicable basis to try and avoid that problem. And let me tell you that I go to court about 3% of my cases because we have alternative means through um, private arbitration now where we can sensibly avoid that conflict so that we negotiate a bit like round the table, but on a more sophisticated basis and with a private judge involved. That's really interesting. Do you think that's something that you'll advocate for yourselves at RWK or is this something that's evolved over time recently? It's definitely evolved over the last five years really, really strongly. And I'm a passionate advocate of um, arbitration. Yeah. You hear a lot in the media about mediation And I trained as a mediator. I'm also a collaborative lawyer. Mm -hmm. But I found the arbitration model, which involves two legal teams and a private judge, really effective and very balanced in terms of men and women and outcome. Do you think mediation, arbitration are particularly something you're passionate about because you're a woman? I'm a problem solver first and a woman second. And I know that those two mediums allow you to problem solve constructively, you know, and lawyer costs are prohibitive at times and have to be proportionate. And if you can, which I always endeavor to do, set out your cost profile throughout at each stage going forward, people can plan with you how they want to get involved in that. We know that the value of good advice should be open and available to everybody, especially if going through a divorce. So, Ursula, can I first come to you on how would someone come to somebody like yourself if they are that person? There are various options. Most people will arrive in your office and say, I've got five or 10,000, which clearly is not going to pay for a sophisticated divorce, even if it goes through an amicable process and settles. So the first thing you've got to address is funding. And that may take the form of family support, which does happen sometimes. I tend to dissuade people from that path because it puts the family under pressure and makes the party you're representing reluctant to 
invest in their settlement in the way they need to do to ensure a reasonable and fair outcome. The alternative to that, I've talked to you a little bit about funding coming from the financially stronger party. That's quite common in a lot of my cases where I'm acting for the weaker party. Um, And that can be quite significant and it can be delivered on a staged basis. So there is an equality of approach and representation. And there are also litigation funders out there now who will upfront the costs on a reasonable basis. But obviously, you're then going to incur interest payments. It's really interesting the way you phrased one of those points, Ursula, in calling it investing in your case. So you are paying your very qualified, skilled lawyer a fee in order to achieve a fair or as fair as possible outcome for you financially. And when I speak to women who have been through a divorce case, they get this kind of fatigue. They're emotionally shot and it's a really horrific process for them. And they get to the point where they just call it quits because they can't do it anymore. But they're shortchanging themselves and they're not investing in their case because they settle for less than they should. I think women generally tend not to be combative. They don't like confrontation. I sometimes struggle to get my female clients to even come to a roundtable meeting because they can't emotionally face being opposite, you know, the person they've emotionally been so committed to. That's a dialogue I have to have often to try and encourage people at the beginning. But it is frightening. It needs a lot of support emotionally and it needs sophistication in terms of the investor side of things where the role of a financial planner is key to bring my client up to speed to where she needs to get to in order to live that independent life she's going to have to embark on now. Whether or not she meets someone else, whether she remarries, we then need to put in place many things to protect her. That needs a collaborative team effort from us all. And I think that's so important, isn't it? Because I've spoken to other family lawyers who who say they advise their clients, you know, this is the point where you need to seek financial advice. And, and a lot of them go a step further. They make the introduction, they meet with them, they kind of push them through the door. But what happens after that? I mean, how do you have any control over the financial plan that that financial planner has made for the client? How assured are you as the lawyer that that client has followed through? Well, all I can do as a professional is to establish strong relationships in the investor world. And when I meet a client to introduce, you know, my client at an early stage to sophisticated financial planners who will create a relationship that they then build on. And that needs to happen from the get go. Mm -hmm. There's no point in introducing a financial planner at the end, because there's no depth and strength of the relationship. And that's when, you know, people go to the wrong person and get the wrong advice. And that is like a double whammy. Mm. It's like the double whammy of a divorce. So it's absolutely critical. And I completely agree because obviously I'm I'm looking at it from the financial perspective and it's really interesting to talk about the topic because there's a particular case study that springs to mind to me. Husband and wife divorced. He was the main earner. She was the homemaker and four children. So a very busy homemaker. And, you know, they went through 
courts, went through the courts twice. Um, they reached a settlement. The main asset was the house for her. But then she was also given a rather speculative property portfolio in an obscure jurisdiction. But it was 200000 and she took it. And I'm not sure that the lawyer and definitely the client hadn't sought financial advice to ascertain the risk of the asset that she was taking on. And actually, that investment ended up resulting in zero. She got nothing. Okay. Well, I mean, obviously, it's part of our job to ensure that our client has a knowledge and specialist advice is available to guide them in terms of the potential shape and form of the settlement. And we often talk about non-risk and high-risk parts of that asset base. Classically, that's why women are pulled towards bricks and mortar. But, you know, it's not unusual for me to have a case where the husband's um, potential uplift in wealth is very much tied into quite a sophisticated business model. So it's important that we make sure as part of our due diligence that we understand where the potential wealth of the family is and how we're going to share that. And that involves lots of other experts helping us as the family lawyer. And it involves the couple investing in valuations from true experts in different areas. And therefore, the sort of scenario you've talked about can be avoided and should always be avoided. It's really interesting because you could adopt too much risk in the settlement, but then you could not take enough risk. Absolutely. One of the other things I think that's come up, which I found really interesting, was the transparency in the relationship. And I'd really love to hear both your opinions. So, Ursula, for you, when someone comes in as a couple who are, you know, obviously divorcing, how much transparency has there been? And then, Phoebe, for yourself, when somebody comes into you to talk about probably post-divorce, the financial settlement, how much transparency have you seen that the woman has come in with? I think traditionally, all of us used to be a bit reluctant to share financial information. And I think men, to be fair, and it usually is men, don't think women care much about the detail of the finances. As long as they're a good home provider, as long as they've maintained high levels of standard of living, they've flown their children around the world, they've had great holidays, they've been to the best schools, they think, why does she need to get involved in this? But in fact, it's essential that you know what's going on and understand how much it costs to run your lifestyle. Because most people, when they get divorced, do not want to suddenly have a massive drop in their lifestyle. Why should they? I mean, in, in my personal experience of clients who have gone through divorce, transparency is an interesting one, whereby I think that going through the process of a divorce, the more financial literate party might be more inclined to, you know, be a bit crafty with their valuations, perhaps undervalue their assets so that they have to pay less. And then equally, I've had a case where it worked the other way and all that glitters is not gold. And they were living a lifestyle that was far beyond their means. She was a homemaker and, and they were leveraged to the hilt. And that put her in a very negative financial situation because, again, you can also share liabilities. Yeah, I remember once working with somebody who married a pop star who had a lot of debt. And uh, she got good advice and she said, 
I'm not taking half of his debt on. So she she did manage to get into the marriage without inheriting the debt. And I, I remember thinking at the time, that's rather clever thinking, because this was way back in the 80s when nobody really talked about that at all. But on that topic, Claire, I think it's important that people understand that that's when um, post-nuptial agreements can come to the fore. So if you have a hiccup in your relationship, and sometimes people do often get back together again, even if there's been a hiccup, or something has happened in their financial lives that's created change, or they've had children arrive and they need to plan the future, it's really important to grasp the nettle and to be the she-wolf investor and to actually plan how you're going to you know, live the rest of your life, how you're going to pay for it and what you're going to do if it all goes wrong. So sometimes people do get a prompt that other people don't because they are under the assumption they're happily married. And sadly, being happily married can come to an end despite your best intentions sometimes. I often have to deal with people who are devastated, both men and women, who never thought they'd get divorced. But unfortunately, people who marry young evolve as people and their aspirations can change and go down different tracks. So it's important to have the right approach to this and not be too sensitive to the idea that you're planning something negative, getting yourself involved in something that seems like upfront paying for a document you don't need. But actually, when you compare the costs of a combative divorce, this is mere pennies. Greatest investment you could make. Well, I love that, Ursula. And if I'm not married, but I'm very successful, earning nice salary, I've got my finances sorted out. Is it worth my while doing some preemptive conversations around prenups? Or is it the sort of thing you look, wait till you find your partner and then go into the agreement then? Well, um, we've already discussed the fact it's a difficult topic to raise. The main reason people used to have prenups was inherited wealth. So the family would say, you must have a prenup. You'd meet your future intended and say, darling, much as I love you, the family don't know what a wonderful person you are, but we've got to have a prenup. If there was enough wealth, most people would say, oh, okay then, if I have to. But we're now talking about a world in which people often marry twice. And if you're going to marry twice, the second time round, the least you can do is have a prenup in place that um, avoids some of the desperate emotions we've talked about that are a consequence of divorce and a difficult divorce. Well, it's a very um, challenging topic, isn't it? Because nobody ever skips into a courtroom delighted that they're divorcing. I would imagine you've never seen that, Ursula. So no. <laughs> it is quite a challenging conversation. But I think that the light in the tunnel is that there are steps that can be taken. And this is about education, awareness and being prepared to have those difficult conversations um, to avoid worse conversations at a later stage. And that brings us nicely round, actually, to finish up the discussion for today. And I would like to ask you both the same question, Ursula, to you first. So how does a she-wolf do divorce? She plans ahead. She talks to a lawyer. Often people get a will done, don't they? They often go to their accountant and plan their taxes. But have they put in place the steps that are going to protect them and protect their asset and their wealth base if it all goes wrong? 
So that's what I'd ask them to do. Talk to a lawyer as well as their other advisors. Perfect. A lot of people do very well out of divorce and they go on to have huge investment portfolios. So it's not all bad news, but having the right lawyer is important. Those are really great tips, Ursula. Thank you. Phoebe, what about you? I think a she-wolf investor needs to have a sound understanding of the assets within the marriage. And I think that it's important to, you know, going back to what Ursula was saying about transparency, lay things on the table and really dig into those items that are there, all those assets that are there. Because as we know, women understand the bricks and the mortar. They get that. They've curated the whole thing themselves and put their blood, sweat and tears into it. But the investment portfolio, the pension, the company that her husband part owns, does she know what that's worth? And I know it is the help of your lawyer and your financial advisor to help you understand that. But it can be bamboozling. It's a very traumatic time for anyone to go through divorce. And if you have that prior understanding and that prior knowledge, it makes it a bit easier to conquer. Can't finish on a better note than that, Phoebe. So if anybody listening in would like more information, because Ursula is clearly a pool of knowledge. Ursula, do you have any online resources you could point people to in the first instance before they would ever come knocking on your door? Yeah, go to our website. It's full of information. It's designed to give you an overview and then please reach out. I never charge for first interviews. I don't believe in it. I think it's important to see if we are a good match, see if we can help each other in the right way. And that's how I'd like to approach things. That's really interesting because we said that on the last podcast, actually, as well with financial advice, usually the initial conversation also comes with no charge. So I think that's really beneficial for people to hear. Thank you very much, Ursula and Phoebe, for giving us so much of your wisdom on this really complex topic. I hope the people listening in have had as much benefit from your wisdom and experience as I have today. Thanks again. Thanks, Claire. It was really, really interesting. Phoebe and Claire, I've been delighted to be on the show. I've really enjoyed it. I think uh, it's been interesting for us all. Thanks for listening to The She-Wolf Investor with your hosts, Claire Barker and Phoebe Chamier, and today's special guest, Ursula Danaher. You can find the assets Ursula spoke about on her firm's website at rwkgoodman.com. We really hope you enjoyed our discussion. To continue the conversation on how to become a She-Wolf investor, look out for more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to femalefolio.com to sign up to our email list. And why not check out all the links and resources we have there too. That's all for this episode. See you next time. And please remember, this information has been provided for educational purposes only and is not investment advice. The value of investments may go down as well as up and neither is guaranteed. You could get back less than you invest.